Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Mathematics. Our guest today is Oscar Fernandez, who has recently been tenured and promoted to associate professor at Wellesley, and whose second book is entitled The Calculus of Happiness. Don't worry, you won't need calculus to enjoy and appreciate this book. It's actually an intriguing way to introduce some of the topics that will later be needed in a calculus class through the examination of some of the basic mathematical ideas that can be used to analyze the problems of how to attain relationship bliss, live long and prosper, and all without being a Vulcan. Oscar, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jim. I'm really happy to be here. Delighted to have you. Um, You know, your previous book was Everyday Calculus, which dealt with calculus. The calculus of happiness mostly deals with mathematics other than calculus. Why did you choose this particular title? Sure. So it's a great question. Uh, the first book that I wrote, Everyday Calculus, uh, was more of a chronological um, exploration, if you will, of all the calculus that you might encounter in a normal day. So I started off in the book, uh, you know, waking up and talking about breakfast and making coffee. And the narrative went all the way till the moment I fell asleep and talk about um, time travel and and, uh, and space and the stars. In this book, I wanted to do sort of a Something different, not quite a chronological narrative, but a thematic narrative, if you will. So I I chose to focus on um, personal finance, health, diet, nutrition, and then also dating and relationships. And I I wanted to to do a similar thing to the first book. I wanted to uh, introduce the reader to all the math that you you can find in those three different um, themes, categories, if you will. But I, I didn't want to do it at the calculus level because I wanted to make the book um, even more accessible to, uh, to a wider audience. There is a little bit of calculus at the very end, and that informed the title. Uh, but there's actually a, a, the, the best uh, answer to your question is there's an application in Chapter 6 to uh, what's called the bargaining problem, which was studied by John Nash, a famous mathematician. And the application is effectively uh, I sort of modify a little bit to help you make a joint decision with your partner about how to uh, split a sum of money in a sort of fair and unbiased way, in such a way that it makes each one of you as happy as possible. So, you know, there, there's a tiny bit of calculation involved in that, in that happiness problem. So that's really where the title came from. You know, I think it's fair to say that for most people, mathematics helps you to achieve happiness indirectly by making better decisions. Definitely. And that is one of the uh, things that I underscore in the book. Um, Most people are used to thinking of math in a sort of very numerical sense. And there's not really a a tie in to the conceptual part of math and how it can help you lead a a better life sort of, you know, day to day uh, life. So I wanted to really highlight that in this book. And, And there's discussions about health and nutrition. There are discussions about budgeting and finance and inflation and investing. And all of these are anchored in in pre-calculus level math. So that's sort of exactly the idea to illustrate how, at least at the pre-calculus level, you don't even need calculus, how you can really um, get some insights into those categories of, um, of life. You know, you start off the book by discussing the problem of how many calories you should eat per day. What role do linear equations play in this? Sure. So in in the simplest uh, setting, you know, if you go to the grocery store and you grab a, a, a cereal box or any, you know, uh, food item, really, you look at the back and at the very bottom of the nutrition label, it'll say something like fats have nine calories per gram and carbohydrates and protein have four calories per gram. And, you know, to a mathematician, when you hear um, the units that are quotients like calories per gram, you think of a rate. Um, so if you took the, the fat calories per gram and you had X grams of that, you would have nine times X calories. And then all of a sudden you have a linear function. So if you, if you think along those lines, you can start thinking about 
you know, the calories you eat in a day as a linear function of how many fat grams you eat, how many carbohydrate grams you eat, how many protein grams you eat. And then that starts the story in the first chapter of the book of, of mathematizing, if you will, um, metabolism and nutrition. A little later on in the chapter, you introduce things called the Mifflin-St. Jor equations, which I must admit I'd never seen before. What are they and how can we use them to adjust our diet? Sure. So, so um, for quite a, a while in the early 1900s, um, scientists were trying to figure out how to uh, empirically describe how many calories uh, the human body burns throughout the day. And various concepts arose, and, and eventually we sort of settled on basal metabolic rate or resting metabolic rate. They're, they're very similar, but they're slightly different. And um, lots and lots of studies were done, experiments where scientists measured how many calories a group of people burned. And they found that they could describe fairly accurately that number using just a handful of variables, namely the weights the age and the height of the person, and also whether they're male or female. So the most accurate equations uh, as of the last 10 or 15 years or so are the Mifflin-Sinjor equations. So if you input your height, your weight, your age, they give you a, a reasonably accurate estimate of how many calories your body would burn if you were awake for a 24-hour period at rest but not fasting. Uh, so that's sort of a baseline level for what you can expect in terms of how many calories you your body will burn, and, and then in turn, how many calories you should consume. Um, good idea. <clears throat> anyway, how do multilinear functions enter the diet picture? Sure. So the Mifflin-Sinjor equations, because they have um, the variables weight, height, and age, each one of those gets multiplied by a number. So you end up getting an equation of the form like 2x plus 3y plus 4z which is what we can refer to as a multilinear equation. Each one of those pieces, like 2x is a linear function, 3y is another linear function, and like 5z is another linear function. So you put them together and it's like saying there are multiple linear functions and that's, that's one way mathematically to view the Mifflin's and Jory equations. And you get lots and lots of insights from that. For example, it turns out that based on those equations, um, men burn about 166 more calories than uh, women of the same age, height, and weight. So that explains some of the, some of the usual uh, observations on the part of, of women that, you know, the, the, the man can uh, eat more calories and not gain weight. You know, the, the sort of physiological explanation, of course, is that men have uh, more muscle mass on average, so they burn more calories. They have a higher RMR, resting metabolic rate. This was an interesting chapter because there are concepts in it that I think should become more familiar to people, especially those who are concerned about their diet. What is energy density? How is it computed and what effect does it have on your overall health? Sure. Yeah. So so, so as you mentioned, the first chapter was really about sort of, uh, uh, you know, mathematizing uh, metabolism, if you will, and then, you know, describing how how many calories your body burns a day and and those sorts of things. And then I wanted to move into nutrition a little bit, and I, and I wanted to tackle the question of, okay, suppose we know how many calories our body burns and, and, and all that information, what should we eat? Uh, and one of the first things that you realize is that um, depending on what food that you know, you're, you're, you're looking to eat, uh, the, the ratio of the calories the food provides to the number of grams or the weight effectively in the food is, is uh, different. So... You know, this changes a little bit. If it's a liquid, then it's not grams. You know, you're probably measuring liters or milliliters. But the point is, there's some measure of how much, you know, calories is energy, how much energy is in the food you're eating per weight or per volume. Um, and this is what's called energy density. So generally, uh, if you plot all of these foods, and there's a graph in the, in the book of this, on, a, on, a, on, the, on the y-axis, you put the um, energy uh, calories and on the x-axis you put how many grams the food weighs, you'll get very, very different results. So for example, apples and strawberries um, are relatively heavy and they don't provide that many calories, so they're very low energy density. Uh, something like a croissant is just a little bit heavier than an apple but has many more calories, so it has a very high energy density. And it turns out that when you, when you plot this, as I do in the book, 
about two calories per gram is sort of the the place where you want to stay uh, under. So apples, strawberries, all the vegetables, most of the fruits, they're very, very low energy density. In other words, you can eat a lot of them and still not eat that many calories. On the other, you know, on the left-hand side of this magic two calories per gram line are things like croissants, things like bagels. These are very energy-dense foods. You can eat just a little bit of them and already have racked up 400 calories or something. Well, that explains why athletes like to carbohydrate load prior to competing. Yeah, so 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 athletes, right? So um, the the carbohydrate load for them. Uh, and so actually, my brother is a is a personal trainer, and he used to he used to compete in bodybuilding competitions. So so I'm a bit more familiar with that than the average person. Uh, the the idea is is pretty much the same. You want to get the most bang for your buck. And, you know, for a bodybuilder, for an athlete, uh, protein is very important. But at a certain point, like right before a competition, if you if they've been dieting to bring down their body fat percentage, they do want a carbohydrate load a little bit just to give them a fuller look, which is a little bit better for in terms of, you know, visually maximizing the amount of muscle mass you have. But, you know, for the average person who's not a bodybuilder or, a, or an athlete, uh, the rule of thumb is, you want to eat foods that are low energy dense because you can eat more of them and still not have eaten too many calories. Very good point. What is the waist to height ratio and how is it used? Yeah, so this is another great story. So um, quite a bit of research has been done to show that uh, there is a fairly um, strong correlation between the waist to height ratio, which is, you know, you measure your waist circumference, you measure how tall you are in, in the same units, you know, maybe centimeters and centimeters, uh, and you take the ratio. So, you know, your waist circumference divided by your height. Um, and then the research that's been done is, is, is really very interesting. It turns out that if that number is one half, in other words, 0 0.5, in other words, if you are twice as tall as you are waist circumference wide, um, then it turns out, uh, based on the research that's been done, you have a very, very high likelihood of living the longest. So it's a it's a lifespan uh, result. And as your waist to height ratio goes up, in other words, as you're you know you you effectively become wider but not taller, then you you start uh, living fewer years. So there are there is a quantification of years of future life lost. And I give some graphs in the in the book and, and some formulas that can actually calculate that. And it's quite stunning because, you know, we sort of have a sense that when we overeat and gain weights, that goes straight to the midsection. And that will certainly increase your waist circumference. But, it, you know, most of us, have, you know, we're adults, we've stopped growing. So if you is increase the waist circumference, but you don't increase the height, the waist to height ratio goes up. And this research says that that directly translates to years of life lost. Uh, so it's a very stunning, stunning uh, relationship. Yeah, I found that very interesting, especially since I'm a relatively thin guy and I'd like to live a long, live long <laughs> and prosper too. You know, I like the idea of ending a chapter with both mathematical and non-mathematical takeaways because both are relevant to this book. Definitely, and this is one of the really um, other features that I wanted to build into the book. You know, I, I tried to make it accessible by, by keeping the math at a pre-calculus level, which most people have studied at some point in their high school education. I also wanted to, to end the book, as you say, with a few takeaways on the mathematical side and also just some practical tips. And then there, the third plug I'm, I'll put in for the features is um, all of the important equations have these little computer icons next to them. So I've, I've created these interactive calculators on my website. So even if, you know, the equation makes absolutely no sense, um, you can follow the link to these interactive calculators and you can input, you know, your own data. Like for the Mifflin Sinjor equations, you could input your weight, your height, your age, and then the calculator will spit out the Mifflin Sinjor resting metabolic rate. You know, one of the things that I do at the end of the interview is that I ask, uh, I ask the uh, interviewee, you in this case, how people can get in touch with you. And so one of the things that I certainly want you to do is I want you to specify the website so that um, our listeners can get on and do just that. But that comes at the end of the interview. 
From a pedagogical standpoint, I like the idea of using familiar examples to introduce new concepts rather than a classical approach, at least for math courses, of defining a concept and then showing an example. You do this extensively, such as introducing piecewise linear functions by using federal tax brackets. For sure, yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned that. This is um, really something that I am uh, very much... Um, aware that is 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 lacking in, in the average um, math course, at least at the college level, uh, and and I think there should be more of it. So my training is as an applied mathematician, so it, it's very hard for me not to see math out in the real world. So I, I sort of think a lot in terms of you know I see something first, and then I try to explain it mathematically, um, and that cer- certainly makes its way into my books. I also think that this sort of approach is sort of the more natural one for someone who does not have a lot of training in mathematics because, you know, they have a lot of training in just living life. So we're all used to making breakfast, you know, driving to work, uh, deciding what to eat, paying taxes. So we have lots of experience with this and not necessarily with mathematics. So it's a very natural direction to start with what the average person has more experience with and slowly peel away the layers and reveal the mathematics behind those everyday events. Yeah. Um, You know, I was around in 1955 when McDonald's brought out the 19 cent cheeseburger that you use to introduce inflation. It's a good way to introduce exponential functions. Definitely. So, you know, this is 1955. The cheeseburger was 19 cents. And I make the point in the book that, you know, in 2017 today, it's, it's the same cheeseburger, you know, the same, you know, uh, buns and the same cheese and the same meat patty. But yet it's, you know, a, about, you know, a dollar, a dollar twenty. So it's much more expensive. So I, I do a calculation in the book. It's about 430 percent more expensive. And, you know, you wonder why uh, it's the same food item. But why is it so much more expensive? And, of course, the answer is that the, the cost of the raw materials, if you will, the cost of paying the employees at McDonald's to serve you the cheeseburger, all of that has gone up. And the question is, why has that gone up? And sort of eventually you get to the answer of inflation, which is basically more and more, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve, I should say, defines it as a general increase of the price level uh, and goods, of goods and services in the economy. So, you know, uh, prices of things have gone up and that trickles down into the price of the cheeseburger. But as you think about how mathematically you might describe this, the easiest thing to do is say, well, by how many, uh, by, by what percent did the price go up every year so that 19 cents in 1955 turns into uh, $1 today? And if you do the math, which involves exponential functions, it turns out to be about 2.8% or so. Um, So you can quantify inflation over time as an exponential function. And if you do that, then you can get a sense for, for example, if if you have a job that um, gives you yearly salary increases as a percentage, if if you're getting a 3% salary increase, then maybe you're actually beating inflation. If you're getting a 1% salary increase, maybe you're not. So these are very realistic ways to just tie this back to a very personally relevant problem, which is effectively, am I getting richer or poorer as time goes on relative to the inflationary environment? Yeah, and uh, that's, you know, that's a good thing for people to be able to look at. But from a mathematical standpoint, I realize that one of the goals of this chapter is to introduce exponential and logarithmic functions But the formula for periodic payments is relatively easily deduced, and I was glad to see you did it in the appendix. I think the importance of this formula is often underestimated. Definitely. So so, uh, that's another feature that is in the book. I I try my best in the body of the book to, um, you know, use mostly English and and not too many formulas to just describe things in words. But each chapter has an appendix where I work out the derivation of all the formulas. So in in particular, formulas for paying off um, a a debt or calculating um, the monthly payment on a mortgage, these are all sort of things that each one of us really thinks about at some point or another when we get that credit card bill in the mail or when we get that mortgage payment or the rent payment. Uh, So... The fact that there's a formula out there that you can manipulate and get insight to, like I discussed in the book, um, just makes makes it a little bit more um, reassuring to know that there is some control that you have over your finances. 
you can manipulate formulas, you can change the value of variables, and you can see what happens. You know, one of the things also, I suspect that this is on your website, but if you just cruise around the internet and just type in such things as uh, mortgage payments or something like that, you'll find that there are a lot of general calculators for this specific formula that you can find on the internet in which you can plug in your own parameters, etc., and I think it's, you know, I, it's, it was one of the first instances in which I started to realize how much stuff there actually is on the Internet that people can use without, you know, exerting too much effort. Definitely. I agree. Yeah. And, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to create these calculators and, and put them in a, in a central place on, on my side, at least. They, they certainly, as you say, exist elsewhere. Um, I wanted to tie it into the, the narrative and the discussions in the book. Um, so. So I, I would say that um, there are many more things that are not included in the book that I would love, love people to learn. Um, but I think reading through the book is sort of a, a first pass, if you will, to get you a sense of where mathematics shows up in all these three categories. And then there are lots of insights and actionable steps that you can take once you finish this book. And speaking of insights, there was one thing that you did in this chapter that I really liked, calculating the number of years until you reach financial independence, because that's something I feel everyone should do. And I like the insights that you supplied with this. For sure. So this is, uh, you know, one of those concepts where you really start to appreciate the power of mathematics. You know, in a nutshell, financial independence is this magic date in the future when you can, you know, retire or quit your job and just live off your accumulated savings. Uh, and very, you know, very quickly it becomes a, a math problem, you know, because you have to say, well, how much money do I need to, to live off of? And then how much money am I going to withdraw every year as sort of my yearly stipend with which I'm going to buy food and, you know, all of that stuff. So, you know, I solved that math problem in, in, the, in the chapter with with a few somewhat reasonable assumptions, uh, and, and I indicate how to make this sort of calculation a bit more realistic. And I give tables and I give formulas. And this is really, again, like I said, one of the times when you, when you can really use this formula, it can change your life. You can calculate, you know, under these somewhat realistic assumptions, currently how many years left you have left to work. Uh, and it, the formula gives you the insight of what you need to do to shorten that time, you know, in, in a nutshell, save more than you spend, but in a very specific ratio. I call it the savings to expenses ratio. Uh, so you can quantify this. And this is, you know, you can do this on paper, but it has so much more, you know, important consequences in real life. So it's, it's a really nice illustration of this sort of abstract nature of mathematics that most people think of as, is sometimes too abstract and inapplicable, becoming very, very personally relevant. Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that I liked about your book is that it's uh, it's uh, littered. Well, I don't know whether or not that's the cry, whether or not that's actually the word that I should use. But there are a lot of just basic facts that people should know about the way the world works that are insights that come from mathematics. And one of them is that paying off non-mortgage debts is a really good idea. Most people don't realize how expensive it is in the long term to make minimum payments on credit card debt. That's right. And this is one of the you know, applications, one of the formulas that I present in the book. And I spent a, I spent a little while discussing it. And you know, there's a formula for you know, paying off um, a debt or you, know, you can manipulate it because it's mathematics. You could say, well... Let's say you have a $1,000 credit card debt and they're charging you 12% uh, uh, a year in interest, in interest um, and the minimum payment is $20. How many uh, months will it take me to pay it off? And I, and I can't remember the exact number. of what I calculated in the book. It might be like 68 months or something. And then here's where the insight comes in. Because you have a formula, you could then explore, well, what if I paid $2 more than the minimum payment? How many months would I save? Or what if I paid $10 more? So you can you can do this calculation very clearly and very concretely see how much money you would save and how much time you would save. And then going back to this non-mortgage debt, um, I make a very simple point, which is, you know, a lot of us have credit card debts and a lot of us are also maybe thinking about investing in some way or savings. But if you think about it, you know, if you have a credit card that's charging you 12 percent every year in interest, then it's really to your best in, uh, in your best interest to pay off that debt first before you go off and use money you would have used for that to, I don't know, invest or save. 
Because every year you make 12 percent, you know, roughly, because there's a little bit of a math and calculation there. You make about 12 percent by paying down the debt. It is very hard to go off and invest and save in any savings account and make 12 percent on your money. Uh, and even if you do, then comes, you know, Uncle Sam and takes away a percentage of it in tax. So I, I really hit home on this idea that if you have non-mortgage debts, that's really where, where the target would be for reducing your expenses. Yeah, and actually one thing that you could also have added, and I don't remember your book totally, and you might have mentioned this, but many people have several credit cards, and people who <laughs> live on credit card debt um, don't realize that what they should do is there's a strategy. Look for the one that's charging you the most interest and pay that one off first. Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah, so I mentioned this in there, and I, and I mentioned a little bit of a, of a, um, a justification, if you will, for this. Uh, and then, you know, a related follow-up strategy to that is um, once you finish paying off that highest interest credit card, what do you do with that money? There's a strategy called the debt snowball, which is you take all of that money and then apply it to the next highest interest rate card in addition to that card's, you know, payment that you were already, already making. So now you're paying even more to that card than you were before, and you keep increasing that huge sum of money until, you know, all your debt snowballs to zero. Yeah, well, that sort of melt <laughs> rather than snowball. Direction. <laughs> um, anyway, one of the things also that's important about the book is that um, it's not only important to get out of date; it's to get out of debt. Rather, it's important to make some money, and that introduces one of the most important concepts from investing, namely risk reward. What is risk reward, and how does it help to gauge how much money one should put in stocks and how much in bonds? Sure, sure. So it's a great question, and there, there are actually quite a few answers because you can quantify risk in a variety of ways. Um, you could quantify, you know, if, if we're talking about a stock, let's say, you could quantify the risk of investing in a stock as, you know, is this company going to go bankrupt tomorrow? You know, perhaps some huge lawsuit or some issue show, you know, comes up that is completely unknown to anyone, and the company just goes bankrupt. That's sort of a risk. You know, your, the stock would drop to zero and then you would lose all your money instantaneously. Um, you know, a, a, a sort of more realistic way that I quantify risk in the, in the book is you look at the price of the stock or, or you look at the price of the asset, whatever you're looking at, a bond or, or something, and you're just looking for how volatile it is. Is it moving around a lot? You know, if I put my money there, will I will it still, you know, be more or less there tomorrow? You know, so. Um, volatility is, is much easier to quantify in terms of risk. So I do that in the chapter, and I just use the stock market, the S&P 500, and I use government bonds. Uh, and I show that if you invest in a portfolio of about 60% bonds and 40% stocks, and you just you, you hadn't touched it, then it manages risk fairly well. Um, and I also show that uh, using math, you can create a nice little table, which I, which I put in there, of if you're more risk averse, well, you could, you know, you could pretty much estimate what the historical return would have been in a portfolio of, let's say, you know, 70% stocks and 30%, 70% bonds and 30% stocks. Or if you're more aggressive, you know, you can, you can estimate, you know, how much percentage you should put into stocks if you want at most a certain, you know, uh, level of risk. So once you quantify and mathematize risk and reward, then you can, if you have an equation, which I, I derive in the book, you can play around with these variables, you know, same story to, to give you the, the level of risk that you, that you are comfortable with and the level of reward that you can expect from that. You know, one of the things that um, we all hope as authors is that our book go, our books go into several editions. Or, um, one of the only suggestions that I would have made about a next edition is that I felt this section might have benefited from a discussion of dollar cost averaging, both from the investment and mathematical standpoint. Definitely. Yeah, I, I would love, you know, as you say, <laughs> I would love to um, to write a, another edition and perhaps add more content. Dollar cost averaging is definitely one of them. Um, there's a whole mathematical theory um, uh, due to uh, Harry Markowitz um, about um, modern portfolio theory, basically, where you can mathematize a little bit more um, a higher level, if you will, this idea of managing risk across your portfolio, and you can find sort of the optimal portfolio given a certain prescribed level of risk. Um, so anytime you mention the word optimum in math, 
usually involves some form of calculus. So, you know, the, the, the mathematics needed is a bit higher level, but it's, it can still be done. So dollar cost averaging, modern portfolio theory, there, there are many more things that I, I, I would love to discuss in there. Yeah, I think Markowitz actually won the Nobel Prize in economics for this work. Yeah, yeah, it was quite the contribution. Yeah. Um, now we're going to get on to the uh, what um, most people consider happiness in terms of relationships. And I like the way that you started out. You made a very intriguing analogy between the Drake equation and finding the right partner. Some of the people listening may not know the Drake equation, so you can supply a little background with that. Sure, sure. So the Drake equation um, was developed by the astronomer uh, Frank Drake, who um, wanted to sort of quantify in some way how many intelligent uh, alien civilizations could possibly be out there. Um, and he thought a little bit about this and, and you know, he, he, re he reduced the problem to thinking about, well, what would be the, the, the conditions that would be needed, you know, as far as we understand it, for, for these civilizations to even exist, you know, and for us to detect them. So there, there are, you know, quantifications of distance, uh, you know, uh, they have to be in a certain uh, distance from whatever star their, their planet is orbiting around, you know, because we've sort of uh, determined that there's a habitable zone, if you will, uh, for planets, you know, for example, uh, uh, Jupiter is not very habitable because it's too far away from our sun, uh, Mercury is way too close. And Earth is sort of in this habitable zone. So Drake sort of quantified all these different parameters, if you will, and came up with the Drake equation to estimate how many potential alien civilizations there could be out there. Um, and the answer that he got was far more than one. So, so that was very exciting. But at, at the end of the day, you know, the actual number doesn't matter so much is what I argue in the book. What matters more is this idea of if you're going to go out and find something, First, you should think about, you know, this particulars of what you're looking for. You know, we want alien civilizations that we could actually reach in terms of, you know, interstellar travel. We want a civilization that is in the habitable zone of their star system. These are all ways to quantify what you want. So, so I mentioned in the book that, you know, finding a, a partner is kind of like searching for aliens because in both cases you're looking for something you're not sure exists, but, you know, you're hoping that when you find it, it's the one. Yeah. Um, you know, also, there were a number of number of very amusing um, parallels in this chapter. And um, you, uh, your analogy with Mary, the matchmaker, applies not only to speed dating, but to the length of your dating life. Why don't you describe the Mary, the matchmaker situation and the speed dating? And then I'll tell you what a friend of mine did with that. Sure, sure. So this is the part in the chapter where I'm, I'm moving, you know, so the Drake equation, I, I sort of uh, modify to help you estimate how many compatible partners might be near you. So, you know, if you input things like the level of education you'd like your partner to have, um, you know, uh, male or female, you know, basic traits, you can kind of estimate how many people are near you. And you can get all this information off like the census or other places. Um, and, you know, some, some famous people have done this in the past that I described and gotten somewhat, you know, depressing results, but at the same time, um, not depressing, depending on how you think about it. So, so the next, you know, uh, a place to go, if you will, is if you've done some calculation like this, you're reasonably sure there are people around you that, that might fit your criteria. The question is, like, how do you, how do you settle on, on who to date, right? You might meet, I don't know, 10 or 15 people. How do you decide after... You know, do, do you start dating the second person or do you start, do you wait until you've met eight of them? So there's this question about if you, if you're going to meet a certain number of people, at what point do you stop and say, okay, I would like to date you. Um, so I set this up mathematically in the, uh, in the chapter and relate this to this problem of hiring um, a secretary, relate this to the problem of um, medical schools, um, placing um, residents in different um, in different hospitals. So there's actually a lot of mathematics that can be done here. And there's a little bit of a rule of thumb that emerges here. But the, the presumptions, the hypotheses to get this rule of thumb are somewhat strict. So if you've ever seen the Millionaire Matchmaker um, show, I think it's on Bravo, or it used to run. I'm not sure if it still does. It's kind of that idea. So suppose you were given almost complete information um, uh, uh, sorry, suppose you were given a, a told by somebody, a matchmaker like Mary, that you're going to meet, um, I don't know, 100 people uh, in a speed dating event and you have five minutes to talk to them. 
And at the end of those five minutes, you have to make a choice, either, you know, date them right away or reject them. Um, you know, there, there are other hypotheses, but this is sort of the crux. The question is, how many people would you would you talk to before you can, uh, you know, you would actually select someone to date? And, you know, an important rule is that, you know, somewhat realistically, whoever you reject on the spot will not uh, will not come back to you. You, know, you won't be able to call them up later and say, hey, um, I rejected you. But, you know, actually, can we can we go on a date? So that's a pretty realistic rule. Uh, so that's where this rule of thumb of 37% comes in. So the idea is out of these 100 people, you should wait uh, till about person number 37, person number 38. And then you should, um, from then on, pick the person who is uh, at least as good as the best of the first 37 or better than those first 37. So I call this in the book the leading contender. So you interview about 37 people and you keep a leading contender in your head. Once you reach person number 37, you start looking for the, the best or you know, whoever is better than that leading contender. Uh, and it's a really nice story. And there's a mathematical proof that this gives you at least a 37% chance of ending up with the best person you could have. Uh, so, you know, 37% is fairly low. But, you know, given how complicated dating is, you know, it's, it's, I, I find it fascinating that there's even a proof of anything that could be, you know, useful in the dating world. Well, you know, this problem has been the mathematical problem on which it's based has been around for, I think, at least a century. And yeah. a friend of mine used the same idea to estimate how he would propose to someone. He said, you should take the esti estimate the length of your dating life, which would be the analogy, the analog of 100 uh, girls in the speed dating pool and date girls for 37% of that time, and then then propose marriage to the first one who exceeds the best from the first 37% of time that you've dated girls. Yeah, so, definitely. You know, this is a, this is effectively, there's actually a mathematical paper showing that um, this sort of, you know, leading contender version in terms of 100 people uh, is, is the same. There's an equivalent, if you will, between that and this, you know, time version of the of the 37 percent rule. Yeah, I wonder if my friend wrote that. Um, anyway, moving on a little, what is the Gale Shapley algorithm and how does it apply in this situation? Sure. So this is another one of the, you know, just uh, so uh, unbelievable applications of mathematics. So suppose you had 100 men and 100 women and you gave them complete information on each other, you know, pictures, videos, uh, you know, family histories, everything you could want. Uh, and then you, you put them in a room and the idea is you want to create couples. Um, so uh, it turns out that the Gale Shapley algorithm um, creates couples that are guaranteed to never cheat on each other. So it is quite the result. Uh, and I, I describe in the book and I, and I do a little proof in the appendix of the chapter how the Gale Shapley algorithm does this. There, there are some, you know, it's, it's quite remarkable, really. Um, but the idea is in, in, in matching uh, one man with one woman and to create a couple, um, not only does this algorithm, uh, you know, apply for, you know, creating couples, for, uh, you know, romantic couples, but I mentioned earlier, you know, hospitals have used this algorithm to pair up residents, you know, with a hospital. That's also creating a couple, you know, a, a resident and a hospital. Um, so, there, there are some interesting um, takeaways. So the way the algorithm is usually presented is that, you know, the men in the room uh, choose first. So they, they, you know, whoever the matchmaker in the room is says, says, okay, let's start. And the men sort of cross over this line and they, they all go pick their favorite uh, woman, their top choice, if you will. So it turns out that if you flip the script and the women choose first, then you can show mathematically that the women end up with the best partners that they could have out of their you know, possible list. Whereas if the men choose first, they end up with the best partners they could have. So, you know, one takeaway from this, you know, is that, you know, if you're a woman and, and you're, you're in the dating scene, then it's definitely to your advantage to be a bit more aggressive and, and take the first, you know, initiate, if you will. Yeah, I think that's it, it's interesting because that's the way dating has evolved over uh, the course of my lifetime. So um, it's sort of interesting that life in that uh, life imitates, if not art, the Gale Shapley algorithm. <laughs> 
Um, you know, I especially enjoyed the view that living happily ever after parallels the evolution of the dynamical system, which is an extremely important mathematical concept. That's yeah. I, so you know, I should say my my own field of research is in mathematical research is in dynamical systems. So you know, briefly uh, said, a dynamical system is. Um, a system meaning you know a collection of uh, particles or, or agents, if you will, that are interacting and, and something is changing over time. Some measure of the system, maybe the energy, maybe um, you know something that you care about. So it, it turns out that mathematicians have, have been thinking about uh, relationships as a dynamical system for a while. And you can kind of see the connection if you think about you know atoms and, and molecules, and we think of like a like an electron, you know, circling around a proton and a hydrogen atom, there's a there's an attraction, a force of attraction, right? The electromagnetic field. So if you replace the, these molecules with like a man and a woman, or or you know, two people, then there's sort of going to be a force of attraction or repulsion, if you will, <laughs> and you can describe some of the dynamics between those two agents as if it were a dynamical system. And it, I discuss in the book a really general model that does this and has some you know interesting um interesting insights it it, it uh shows that uh the couples in this model split into robust couples into fragile couples basically couples that can absorb shocks to the relationship you know maybe maybe you you pick up your cell phone and you find that your significant other has been texting with someone else you know and and it looks like it might have been a romantic something Right. That would be a shock to the relationship. And in this dynamical systems model, some couples can recover from that shock. Others can't. But then the insight. So so the, the actual mathematical model gives you some some ways out, if you will, some things you could do to strengthen the relationship. So, again, it's, it's just fascinating to me that there's there's a there are equations that can give you relationship advice effectively and yeah. good relationship advice. Oh. Absolutely. And one of the things that is in your book, which is partially common sense and partially the result of thinking of things from the mathematical standpoint, is what three pieces of advice can help a fragile couple become more robust? Definitely. So so this is a, this is a, in, the, in the last um, chapter of the book. And, you know, this this idea of a of, of fragile couple, again, somebody that um, uh, can't so easily um, absorb shocks to the relationship. And a robust couple, which is one that, that can absorb shocks. And the three pieces of advice that come out of this model for how to become a more robust couple is to ensure that there's high enough interest on both ends, you know, on, on the part of both people in the, in the relationship. Um, so interest here is more than just, you know, um, physical appeal, right? So, so this is really good relationship advice. The idea is... Uh, work on yourself to make sure that you are the best you that you can be, and that will naturally sort of ensure high interest, uh, you know, for your other partner. So if there's a shock to the relationship, if both of you are doing this, you're still very interested in each other. So there's a really high probability that you know you, you'll you'll work through the shock, if you will. And the second one is um, uh, blunt the effect of shocks to the relationship, um, so that you can avoid a, a, a breakup. So you know, if, if you're just good at, at communicating with your partner and you can you can work uh, work on, you know, discussing what happened rather than just, you know, I can't believe you were texting this person. I never, never want to talk to you again. So finding active ways to sort of deal with the shock, if you will. And then the third one is, you know, uh, improving the, the sort of appeal of one individual it turns out to lead to more positive feelings for both people at this sort of equilibrium point. Um, so it, it's kind of like the, the interest part, uh, but um, this is an ongoing, um, um, you know, a, a thing in time. So, so as you as you move forward in time, helping each other become the best you that can be collectively as opposed to just individually. You know, so these, these are really three great pieces of, of relationship advice that come from a mathematical model. You know, there was one thing when I first the first time that I dated my wife, um, we were having dinner and. 
I asked her what she thought made for a good relationship, and she said something which isn't touched upon in your book, but I think is extremely important. She said, I think that the couple should have 70% of things in common and 30% of things different, and I like two things about that. Number one was that she quantified it in terms of percentages, <laughs> but also one of the things that's sort of underappreciated, and I don't know whether or not it enters into a, uh, a dynamical system model, is that you have to have something about a couple that's a little different. Otherwise, you're sort of getting involved with yourself. And unless you're a narcissist, there's uh, uh, there's not that much there. Yeah, no, this is, that's a great story. And, you know, in a way, right, 70 percent, that that's what I would consider high enough interest. Right. Which is one of the one of the three things that this model shows that it can can turn into turn a fragile couple into a robust one. And I totally agree about the 30 percent. So, you know, one of the um, good good things to keep in mind about mathematical models is that they're exactly that. They're just models. So, you know, we, we mathematicians pride ourselves in the applications of, of various types of math to the real world. Sometimes, though, we forget that the real world is not, not exactly math. You know, we, we can do our best to model the interactions, but there's always going to be some error. There's always going to be some omission. So the best we can do is to model something reasonably accurately. Um, and, and I haven't looked, but I, I would love to see a model, a mathematical model, that somehow incorporates or concludes exactly that, that you need some, some differences, if you will, to make the relationship even stronger. I, I also believe that. <laughs> yeah, I would, I, I'd like to see that, too. Anyway, um, one of the things also that you discussed that's very important to a relationship is the process of making a joint decision. And what is the procedure for optimizing a joint decision? Sure. So this is the this is the another great story. This is what I had mentioned earlier that um, motivated the the title for the book. So you know the setup is supposed to get a, a check in the mail from some class action lawsuits. You know, uh, you know, eight eons ago you bought some product and then someone some group of people sued and the company gave everybody who bought that product money. And so you get this check. Let's say it's five hundred dollars. Uh, the only issue is that it's addressed to you and your partner. So now the both of you have to decide how you're going to split the money. Um, so you're making a joint decision and you would like to make an optimal decision in a way, right? Each one of you probably wants a certain amount of money and would be happiest with a certain amount. But chances are, you know, you're not going to just throw out a number and your partner's going to say, sounds good. You know, maybe your partner wants to spend all of it and maybe you want to save all of it because you read through the personal finance part of the book. So, you know, there's a happy medium somewhere. There's an optimal decision that you're making jointly. So I, I discuss in the book how John Nash, the, the game theory um, mathematician, who, who sort of won the won the Abel Prize for this, um, and I think he also might have won a Nobel Prize. I'm he did. Sure. He won a Nobel Prize in economics. Yeah. So he quantified this uh, through the bargaining problem. He called this the bargaining problem. Uh, and I think he was about 21 or 22 years old when he published a solution to this problem. And it was it, it turned out actually, you know, to be a really important solution because it's satis it's the unique solution satisfying a certain number of mathematical properties that you would want, like fairness and unbiased. So what I do in the book is I, I apply Nash's algorithm um, to this problem of how do you split this five hundred dollars, and then I actually give formulas that you can you know they have a little computer icon next to them, so you could go online and you can plug in you know if it's not five hundred if it's two hundred thirty four, you know you could plug in this number you could plug in some level of how happy you would be if you got all of the money, how unhappy you would be if the two of you just could not agree on how to split the money. And then the formulas based on Nash's algorithm tell you exactly how to split this. And then the last thing I'll say is, you know, uh, as usually happens with math, this, uh, this, this whole um, application was about splitting $500, but replace $500 with anything divisible and you could apply the same mathematics. For example, maybe you want to split a pizza or you want to split a cake or you, you're, in a, you're a company and you have 40 hours that you can pay your employees with. How do you split that up among your employees? So anything divisible really could be tackled with Nash's algorithm. Yeah. You know, I was glad to see a pitch for higher math in the book's epilogue. As you say, learn more math. Although it does get more difficult, it also gets more powerful. And I think that calculus, for which this book helps prepare you, is one of mankind's greatest and most powerful intellectual achievements. Definitely, yeah, I agree. And that's really why I, you know, I, I wanted to structure the, 
bookends only requiring pre-calculus, but certainly as you move through the chapters, mathematics gets more and more advanced, hopefully in a, in a gentle manner, which, is, which was my design. You know, the very beginning of the book, like we talked about, starts with, you know, linear functions like 2x plus 4. And then now at the very end, we just talked about dynamical systems. You know, we talked about probability. Um, so really, this book is sort of meant to be, if you peel away the narrative and if you peel away the applications, meant to be a way to, to gently get the reader back into math and, and prepare them, as you say, to step into calculus. Um, because it's pre-calculus level, you know, in this book, you'll find exponential functions, you'll find logarithmic functions, polynomials, linear functions, pretty much all the basic and more important and probability and topics that you would, you would see in a pre-calculus course, which is generally at least in the U.S. what you take uh, before you study calculus. So, you know, in reading this for pleasure, if you will, and, and using its insights to sort of inform you know, your bigger and, and better life, you will also be effectively preparing for a calculus course. And that's really one thing that I wanted to, to build in there, if if anything, in a sort of discreet Yeah, uh, Oscar, and what I always do with the end of an interview is I ask the interviewees two questions. First, are you working on anything that our audience might find interesting? Uh, definitely, definitely yes. So, so I just uh, turned in the manuscript for my third book, um, which uh, hopefully will also be published with, with Princeton Press. And this is a um, uh, meant to be uh, a book that uh, is more of a of a textbook, although not quite a textbook for Calculus One. Uh, and the rough idea, very quickly, is uh, I, I have tried to make it as short as possible. So. The goal of the book is to teach you calculus in 100 pages, uh, but, you know, not not a sort of uh, very fast, you know, here's a formula, memorize it, right? It's, it's really meant to be a college-level approach, um, but how I get to the 100 pages is that um, I require just an algebra background. So this book uh, will allow middle schoolers to learn calculus, um, you know, so stay tuned. Hopefully that, that will uh, be coming out in the next uh, year and a half or so. And I hope I have an opportunity to interview you on it. And finally, how do our listeners yeah. get in touch with you? Sure. So uh, uh, my, the website that I, um, I, I have, to, you know, where all these calculators associated with the book are, are, um, are housed is surroundedbymath.com. So www.surroundedbymath.com. And in the book, actually, in the uh, preface, there's another website, which is the link to the, the publisher's site for the book, the Princeton University Press um, site for the book. If you click on that link, then there are all sorts of, you know, redirects to my site and to the calculators also. And then the last thing I'll say is I, I really wanted to make this book um, as accessible as possible. So, you know, my email is included in the preface. Uh, so far, I haven't gotten that many emails, uh, but I, you know, totally encourage anyone who has any questions or comments on the book, feel free to contact me. Terrific. Oscar, thank you so much, and I look forward to talking to you again, and I wish you the best of success with the book. Thank you, Jim. Thank you very much.